The Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to Rock Talk, and I am your host, of course, Mitch LaFawn, and uh, welcome. Welcome to my new home, the new sort of platform for the show, Westwood One. And of course, growing up in the 70s and 80s, Westwood One was it when you thought of a rock concert, either a live recording of Cheap Trick or Kiss or any of these bands. It was Westwood One that brought it to you. So I'm stoked to be on the same sort of platform that brought you those great concerts back in the day. Um, Great show for you today. I'm going to start off with former uh, guitarist for... The Scorpions, Michael Schenker, and of course, UFO and all the other things he's done. He's got a new album out uh, under the name Michael Schenkerfest called Resurrection. And it includes Kurt Hammett and all the singers that he's had in the past. So uh, Gary Barden, uh, Graham Bonnet, Robin McCauley, and Dookie White. And so we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about Klaus Mine. We're going to talk about Lights Out. We're going to talk all kinds of stuff, including including, yes, the very important, pig nose amps, because no conversation is complete until you talk about pig nose amps. On the other side, I have got from Simple Minds. Yep, they're still alive and kicking. See what I did there? Uh, Jim Kerr. They have a new album called Walk Between Worlds, and I had a chance to check it out before it was released. It is it is just a great pop record if you if you like what the band did in the 80s you know alive and kicking don't forget uh, about me and all that stuff just a great song and the conversation just couldn't be nicer so uh, stick around for that and recently 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 i have gone down the rabbit hole of cheap trick in 2017 all their sort of sony cbs legacy records were were re-released on blue spec cd which is a audio format that uh, the Japanese crave, it just sounds, I mean, if, if you think remaster, this is like remaster plus plus. And so they, they put out these albums in um, Japan and I bought them. And the sound on albums like The Doctor or Standing on the Edge is so above and beyond what we've been used to in North America that it just sent me down this rabbit hole of I've got to make a playlist and I'm going to put together the best tracks and blah, blah, blah. And of course, I got carried away. It ended up being 340 songs, one playlist, 340 songs, over 22 hours of music. Just, you know, in case I decide to drive from Montreal to Zimbabwe, I'm covered, you know. Um, But author Robert Lawson has put together a book called Still Competition, The Ultimate Listening Guide or The Ultimate Listener's Guide to Cheap Trick. And he, like I, is a Canadian. And the book is just great. It goes song by song, you know, album by album. And it says, this is this song. This this is where it came from. Here are the different versions of it. There's a live version here. There's an edit version here. And for the music geek, the musicologist geek in me, uh, I just love this book because it really goes into Cheap Trick. So we talk about Cheap Trick. So I'll I'll start with that. Uh, What I'm going to do here is I'm going to split up the Robert Lawson uh, chit-chat. So we're going to talk a little bit of tri- uh, Cheap Trick for seven to eight minutes, and then I'll, I'll, I'll sink right into, or I'll seg right into Michael Schenker. We'll come back, we'll finish the Robert tr- tr- the Robert Lawson talk, and then we'll move over to Jim Kerr of Simple Minds. And uh, before that, 
Vinnie Vincent of KISS, or formerly of KISS, has reemerged. He's back. The Ank Warrior is back. And I will have to admit that I was actually touched and uh, somewhat, I don't want to say emotional, is that is that the word? Verklempt, right? For those of you who used to watch Saturday Night Live, I was verklempt at his return. It, it did sort of bring a tear to my eye because he, he just, he looked... Um, he looked like he was in a happy place. He looked like he was uh, happy to be there, and the fans greeted him warmly. The internet, of course, went on and said, oh, he looks, and it's like, stop it. Stop it, stop it, stop it. He looks fine. He looks happy, and I'm glad to have him back again as a big, big music geek, music fan. New music is good music, so if Vinnie Vincent is back and he shows up on the KISS cruise, or he's a special guest at a KISS show, or he he joins powers with Mark Slaughter and Dana Strum and makes a noose, I'm all for it. So stop with the negative comments about blah, 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 and just focus on the positive. A guitar hero from our youth, from the 80s, from my youth, I should say, is back. And if we get him producing new music and a couple of shows... More power to him. So welcome back, Vinnie Vincent. Um, hey, let's let's hope that, uh, you know, we see you maybe on the Kiss Cruise. That would be fun, right? The Kiss Cruise has announced that Ace Fraley, Bob Kulick, and Bruce Kulick will be part of the 2018 Kiss Cruise. Why not Vinnie Vincent? I, I'm up for it. And Vinnie did mention that on the Nashville, Tennessee vault experience for Gene Simmons that he would appear. I hope that that does come to fruition. As as of this recording, uh, it is an unknown, but uh, let's hope it happens. Um, anyway, let's talk Cheap Trick, shall we? Uh, here is the one, the only, author Robert Lawson, and the book is Still Competition, The Listener's Guide to Cheap trick. We are speaking with author Robert Lawson. The new book is called Still Competition, The Listener's Guide to Cheap Trick. And uh, Robert, pleasure to speak with you. And I wanted to have you on for two reasons. A, because I have gone down the Cheap Trick rabbit hole recently, having having made a 340-song playlist for my iPhone. And B, you're Canadian. And us Canadians, we stick together, right? So pleasure to have you. All right. Hi, it's great to be here, Mitch. Yeah, so so let's talk about this book, and then we'll talk about our love for Cheap Trick. Because, you know, growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, for the longest part of my rearing in rock and roll, it was Cheap Trick, Kiss, and Aerosmith. And sometimes it was Kiss, Aerosmith, and Cheap Trick, and right? It, it was always those bands that I sort of, that attracted me to it. Where, where and when did you get... Uh, or did you fall in love with Cheap Trick? And then where did you get this idea to write a book about the band? Uh, well, the first part, uh, like yourself, I was a, I was a big Kiss fan in the 70s and uh, followed them quite a bit. The uh, Paul Lynn Halloween special was uh, pretty tremendous uh, to see as a little kid because, of course, we didn't have music videos back then and you didn't often see footage of kind of your favorite rockers just walking around and talking and um it's kind of taken for granted these days i think but uh so seeing kiss on paulin television uh halloween television special was a big deal and so on 
July 21st, 1977, Kiss came to town on their Love Gun tour, and I didn't know who the opening act was, and I don't know if I even knew that groups had opening acts, uh, but it was Cheap Trick. And that was my first introduction with seeing them live, uh, basically touring to promote their first album. The uh, The Kiss tour was a, them taking a break from re- recording uh, the follow-up in color. So they only had one album out, and uh, they made a huge impression on me. And I kind of became a fan ever since then. Um, wow. That, my so memory, you, you my actually memory, saw them in 77? Yes. Whoa. Okay. See, I, my first show was '79 with with Kiss in New England. So, oh, we're gonna have that's a, this is a whole different conversation that we're gonna have to have. But, but yeah, continue with with how you you discovered them because to me, right there, that's that's right, that's enough. <laughs> you so got it. it. Yeah, like it was. Uh, you know, it was a neat thing seeing. Uh, I didn't like. I said I didn't know what to expect. I was like ten years old, and I didn't know anything about opening acts and uh my father took uh, myself and my sister to uh, to see kiss and uh and and cheap trick were the openers they really made an impact on me and after that i was really interested in cheap trick not that i wasn't talking a lot about the kiss concert on the schoolyard the next day believe me i was but uh cheap trick really made an impact on me and the first album i ended up buying um or my mother bought for me actually was heaven tonight. And from there, you know, you're in, that's it. Yeah. You're, you're, you're down the rabbit hole there. So, okay. So talk to, explain to the listeners what this book is. Cause I've had a chance to read through it and, and, and it's yeah. just so wonderfully put together. And, and I'll, I'll sort of set out the concept in general. You've basically gone album by album, demo by demo, soundtrack by soundtrack. And you, go through every song and every version and um, talk to me about that research and how long it took you to compile it and then sort of give your spin on what the book uh, Still Competition, the listener's guide to Cheap Trick is. Well, you know, the yeah, the idea is to uh, really dig into the music, which is what I'm, it's the only thing I'm interested in. So um, I'm writing the kind of books that I would want to read. So, uh, a cheap trick book is, isn't going to have anything about their personal lives or their romantic relationships or anything like that. Um, not interested in it. So I just talked about the music, but I try to go, uh, in deep with the music. So instead of, you know, you might like you read one article saying, Oh, Budokan was done completely live. And then another article says, well, they, they did some overdubs or they did some studio fix-ups. I want to go in there a little bit more and actually figure out what stuff is really from Budokan, what stuff did they change in the studio, um, what stuff maybe is from a different show. Uh, just that little bit of detail to uh, fill it in, fill in the story a little bit more. Yeah, and, and, and talk to me about that because I've always been a completist when it comes to the bands I like. If If... Kiss puts out, you know, 20 greatest hits, I buy them all. If they have different versions, same thing with Cheap Trick. And up until your book, I was satisfied that I had every single available Cheap Trick track out there. And then I discovered that there was about four or five that I didn't have and I had never heard of. So how do you sort of, how did you get to to know 
where to look for these tracks and come across them. And and is every track mentioned in your book something that you personally own? Were you able to track down all these tracks or some of it? I heard about this track, so I'm going to tell you about it. I don't think there's anything on there that I haven't or not, nothing in there that I haven't actually heard. Uh, some of them, you know, Robin Zander's done a lot of collaborations with other artists. Uh, a lot of that stuff, maybe I've just found it on YouTube or uh, I did get help from some pretty big collectors out there who would, uh, you know, be able to send me a file of a tune that I couldn't actually find a hard copy of. So well, for to you here, because, well, in fact, let me go here first. Since you mentioned Robin Zander, he had an album come out for about an hour years ago called mm. Countryside Boulevard, which was this yeah. country album, uh, which I've had a chance to hear. It sounds great. I mean, you know, it's it's not cheap trick. But talk to me about that album in particular, and why was it sort of released and literally an hour later pulled from the market? Well, that's um, there's a couple of things we can we could talk about that uh, Countryside Boulevard record, which I just found out today that the title song Countryside Boulevard he's re-recorded that with Joe Perry as an exclusive track on Joe's the vinyl version of Joe's new album. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so Xander's still uh, kind of dealing with Countryside Boulevard. But it's a neat record, and that's an example of, of what I'm saying about trying to get like a little bit more detail because there's a lot of rumors about that record, and some people, you know, some people think it was never released. Other people insist that it was released and that they have actual physical copies of it. So I needed to kind of dig into that just a little bit to figure that out. You know, was it actually released? It was, like you said, but very limited and only as a digital download. And I suspect that the reason for that was it was part of Robin's original contract with the label that there would be some sort of a of a release. Um, the band were in record uh, company negotiations. Uh, around that time and they fell apart and they ended up uh, not continuing their deal with that label and Xander's album is also with that label um, so it got kind of lost in the shuffle and uh, the label owns it they released it digitally for one day or a, or a portion of one day some fans were able to grab it right away and they've sort of circulated it so that other fans can hear it but if yeah. For sure, if you see if you see any actual CDs of it, they're not real. They're yeah, bootlegs. Those are definitely bootlegs. Yeah, and, and and they'll often they'll often say in the artwork, uh, the unreleased album, and you know, <laughs> and right. here it is. So I, and yeah, and you're holding it. You know, he's recycled some of those songs or has used them in other places. He had another solo album come out where he uses the song "Walking Shoes." Love Comes, yeah. of course, is on uh, Standing on the Edge. And, of course, What's Her Name was released on, as, as, a, as a B-side to a single. Um, That's right. To you, what would be the best Cheap Trick album? If a fan's listening to this and they don't know the band, what's the one album where you say, okay, here's the one you got to go check out first? Ah, yes. Cheap Trick's best album, according to author Robert Lawson. I will leave you with that for now and uh, head over to Michael Schenker talking about Resurrection, his new album. He also talks about UFOs, Lights Out, Klaus, 
and Rudolph and all kinds of great stuff. So without further ado, uh, I will give you Michael Schenker and then we will come back and we will hear Robert Lawson's answer as to what is the best Cheap Trick album. But first, here's Michael Schenker. Hey, Michael, how are you? Yeah, great. How are you? Good. Pleasure to speak with you again. It's always a pleasure. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Yes. So uh, let's uh, let's get right into the album Resurrection. Um, first of all, let, let me start off with the simple question about the title. Um, is there any meaning to the fact that it's, it is, it's a resurrection? Is this somehow you're relaunching something or you're starting something over? Yeah, um, Okay. exactly. So, okay. Yeah, it's it's like uh, that's exactly what you know. I, I I actually wanted to call it the Michael Schenker Fest in the studio with a with a big table with a lot of food and wine and and beer and and Hofbräu House woman with big bosom and have a party in the studio with a control room in the background. <laughs> that was my my original idea, you know. But when Dougie came up with "Take Me to the Church," and all of a sudden Michael Foss was writing "Last Supper," and uh, you know, my original idea just kind of all of a sudden became something else. And so I had to figure out what, what, where, where we're going with this. This was an un, unexpected turn. And so, you know, I looked at and so I looked at my career and, and what I did and that I actually kind of dropped out for a while. And, and you know, that, that I basically left the universe and <laughs> entered a different one. And and kind of came back, you know, and that actually applies to the rest of the guys. And so, you know, and to see it, all these guys together, together on one table at some point in life, it's a, you know, a, a kind of a miracle in a way. But, you know, it's a resurrection, you know, we all have been together at some point. And, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I thought that the resurrection would have been a, a, you know, it's it's a bit like a comeback type of a of, of a title and uh, reborn or or whatever. You know, being back. You know, to where you once were, and uh, and and so you know, and then basically I I came up with resurrection, and then I you know I didn't have a title for for the for the instrumental, and so I just said salvation and and the whole thing was complete <laughs> yeah and it really came now you did i do want to talk about the the singers in a second but you did mention that you sort of left the universe for a while and you came back and you came back very strong with michael Schenker's temple of rock is that something that for now is on the back burner or is that because i bought those albums and they were superb i mean uh, yeah you and, 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 and you know go ahead yeah yeah basically you know i look at my whole journey as a journey you know like from the moment i was born um you know every step was a step that led me to today and uh you know when i did michael schenker's temple of rock with herman and francis um you know it was fantastic it was uh you know i doogie took on the european tour before we even made an album together and then the next step was let's make an album together and then we toured and toured and made albums and albums and and really created some great stuff and uh you know doogie and i are the are great chemistry and we toured so much with the two um um, um studio albums and two dvd live cds and uh you know, and, and we didn't take a break. It was like four or five years consistently. Usually people, when they are that much around uh, and they need a break or, or take a break from the, from the, from the fans, they, you know, they make an album for three day, for three years and that's how they get their break. And then they come back and carry on. And, but, you know, so 
I, I realized that we were, came to that point where we needed to have a break because we were playing the same cities. We were doing the same journeys round and round and round. And you can't do that. You know, at some point you have to break and have distance in order to appear fresh again, you know? And so it, I suggested that to the guys. And then we just had released a um, live album, uh, Spirit on a Mission, um, uh, uh, Life in Madrid. And so that kind of uh, gave me the um, the confidence that that, that 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 was a good timing for a break because there was a DVD live CD out that you know, kept the fans going for a while. And so, you know, Doogie kept calling me up. Uh, I said, uh, you know, when are we doing the next album? I said, well, you know, let's wait at least a year, you know. And uh, we also need a record company, so we can't just make a record. We, you know, we need to be, it needs to be, uh, everything needs to be there. And so, and then he kept calling up and he kept calling up. So Francis already joined a different band and did something. Uh, 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 Herman started doing something else, and and you know, and and so everybody was occupied with their own vision of what they wanted to do next. And so, you know, I kind of um, uh, that's when I kind of got into you know what um, it's it's like um, it's like a third stage of my life. You know, I feel like. You know, it started in 2008, you know, that I wanted to be on stage all of a sudden and having stage fright all my life and all of a sudden I wanted to be on stage. So I took that as a sign and that was the beginning of the preparation of the comeback, you know, to be prepared for what I'm doing now. But, you know, nothing was planned. I take everything step by step. And so Doogie kept calling up. But by that time, I already started going like, you know what, Michael, you are, you started off in 2008 before the concept was, um, um, you know, it was as exciting as what I'm doing now because it was like, ah, the most popular music of Michael Schenker. That's what I want to put together. I want to put together a set with the most popular music of Michael Schenker. And so it was sung by different singers and, uh, and then eventually by Doogie for four or five years. And then I realized, you know, it would be fantastic if I could, you know, play the most popular music of Michael Schenker with original singers, you know, the way it used to be. And so that was basically um, a, 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 um, a realization that that took over. You know, I went like, wait a minute, this is what I, you know, I, I, I could be, I, w- I might be able to do this with the, with the 80s, you know, like uh, maybe Phil and Klaus a bit far-fetched, but maybe with the 80s with uh, with Gary, uh, Graham and Robin, and uh, I can put a set together uh, with these three singers, you know, and sing and 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 do the most popular of that period. And and I was really excited about this idea. And Doogie kept calling up and said, well, "When are we doing the next Temple of Rock?" And and said like, "What well, you know? Maybe maybe we should even wait until 2018 and give it a bit more space." And and eventually I went, "Wait a minute." You know, everybody is doing their own thing. Everybody is busy. And Doogie keeps calling me up. Why don't I just keep? Why don't I just get Doogie in to the Michael Schenker Fest? We are the the songwriters anyway. And so the chemistry that I fell in love with, you know, between guitarist and 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 uh, and and 
and singer, like like great guitarist, great singer, Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, uh, uh, Rod Stewart, Jeff Beck, and that type of thing. You know, I felt that what that's what I had with Doogie, and so I said, you know, I mean, when you you know, the Temple of Rock really basically is based on Doogie and myself, you know, because it 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 starts with writing songs. You know, you have to first have, you have to have the music. Um, if there's no music, you don't have anything. And then the singer gets inspired by the music and does his part. And then you have the key elements, which is the guitar playing and the and the singer and the you know the um, taking taking turns. You know, like the singer starts off the song, then the lead guitarist you know, takes it to a, another uh, level, and then he, the singer brings it back, you know, to the ground and and and, and finishes the song. And so I, I said to Doogie, you know what? Everybody's busy and doing things. There is no record company. I don't know how, how to make this happen. I don't know. Herman and Francis, they're, they're doing their stuff. And so why don't you come and join this? And you can be your own man. You, you don't have to sing Gary Barden anymore. You don't have to sing Graham Bonnet. You, can, you have already now... Uh, it has been five years or six years even. You already have your own classics. You know, you have Vigilante Man and, and Lord of Lost and Lonely and so on. And so, you know, it made sense to him, you know. And, 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 and you know, Graham Bonnet and, 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 you know, that because Doogie is actually the youngest singer of, of, of them all. And so at some point, you know, he, he looked up, you know, to Gary. And it's really remarkable. And so the Doogie is a fantastic singer and, and songwriter. And he, the way he... Uh, um, you know uh, the chemistry between what he does with my music is is really fantastic. You know, so it it had to happen. You know, it had to happen that way. And so I said, do you, you know, you have to you have to join this. You know, it makes more than sense. And and you have and you have your own classics and you sing Doogie White stuff and that's it. You know, you sing the the uh, 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 Schenker White stuff. And Gary sings the uh, Baden uh, Schenker stuff. I mean, uh, sorry, the, the, the yeah, yeah, Schenker White, uh, Schenker Baden, and so on. And um, and so that way we have we have a we have a a, a a complete show here, a big show, a fantastic show with all original singers, and it makes perfect sense, you know. And 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 it worked out fantastic. Yeah, it really does. And and as a fan, I'm so thrilled because you're actually going to be in my town in Montreal in March, and I am going to be there sitting in the front row cheering you guys on. <laughs> you know, I, truly. Um, in your answer there, you quickly mentioned the name of Klaus, of course, Klaus Mein of, of On the Rock Will Never Die album and on the Live at Whacking 2006, you guested with them for a couple of songs and On the Rock Will Never Die from 83, 84, uh, Rudolph and Klaus guested with you. Would you, as you're celebrating with, with the Michael Schenker Fest, looking at your past, would you at some point like to have them come to a show in London or in Berlin or in Paris and just play a song with you? Is that something that you would hope could happen? Well, it's exactly what would make sense and and you can dream about these things you know there are possibilities that that can happen for instance that this is the uh, 2018 is the 40th anniversary of strangers in the night uh voted one of the best uh, rock albums of all time and so you know 
don't be surprised if at some point at some festival Phil Mock is going to be standing on stage and singing a few UFO songs, you know, uh, joining the Michael Schenker Fest. And in 2019, which is 50 years anniversary of Klaus Meine and myself, uh, 50 years uh, recording. I mean, the anniversary of 50 years recording. So um, my ever first written song was In Search of Peace of Mind. And it would be fantastic if that could happen in 2019 that Klaus decides, you know, out of the blue, what the heck? Let me go on stage with Michael and 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 perform that song that we started it. You know, that was the very first, you know, Lonesome Crow, the very first song. You know, and Klaus Mein and I we played together in a band before, and we, you know, we 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 covered, you know, Zeppelin and Rory Gallagher and Deep Purple and uh, and Black Sabbath and stuff like that. And then and then I wrote the song in search of peace of mind. You know, and then. And 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 you know, and that was the the beginning of 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 that of that you know. And so in 2019, it's 50 years of recording for Klaus and myself, and and 40 years of Love Drive. Let's not 40 years of Love Drive in 2019. Came out in 79. That is a good point because it happened straight after uh, uh, Strangers in the Night. Very good. Let me think about that. <laughs> You just gave me an additional information that almost is slipped slipped by, you know. Yeah, exactly. And so I tell you, I mean, you know, uh, it, it's nothing wrong with streaming. And uh, the thing, the facts are that these are the anniversaries, and uh, you know, um, we are growing older fast. And uh, you know, let's kind of make the most of it, and yeah. let's see what what can develop. And I think at this point, it's it's okay to, and I don't want to, how does it say, it's okay to give back to the fans and just say, you know what, let's just give them this one moment Absolutely. in Paris. Of and, course. And, yes, of course. Of course. And, and, it, and, and, it, it, and, you know, it would be fantastic, you know, if to see Phil Mock, you know, singing, um, you know, basically you it, it, all you really need is the, it's the vocalist and the guitarist, because that really are the key elements, you know, like, um, even though, you know, John Bonham is my favorite musician. I mean, he's a drummer. He's my favorite drummer too, but he is my favorite musician because I don't know how many people are aware of, of, uh, what kind of, you know, what a monster of a musician, uh, uh, John Bonham is, you know, I mean, he is the inspiration of Led Zeppelin, you know, it, it made Zeppelin tick. <laughs> It was like he was playing music on his drums, you know. He was playing songs on his drums. I mean, they all got inspired by by John Bonham, you know. And so, it's it's uh, it. What I fell in love with was, you know, the the a great guitarist and a great singer. You know, that's what I that's what I was most interested in. But of course, you know, with bands like Led Zeppelin, you had a the best drummer in the world. You know, he was, you know, according to my taste, you know, the the best musician, and 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 you have all these, you know, Jimmy Page, and you have, uh, um, you know, the the bass player John Paul Jones, and so on, and and, and they are the best of the best, and uh, you know, if if you have that, um, that chemistry, you, yeah. after so many years, after so many years, you have. Uh, 
you know, lost some of the of the people that were part uh, of 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 the of a chemistry, you know, like Pete Way, you know, Ron Neverson, and and so on. You know, you take one person away, you know, you, you have a different chemistry. But the, the the thing is, you always have the key elements, you know, which is like Doogie myself, you know, key, Phil Mock and myself, Klaus Meine and myself, depending on what era you, you're looking at, um, you know. But then you have also people that stick out, you know, like Chris Glenn and, and, and uh, Ted McKenna, because they were, after Cozy Powell, the original MST rhythm section, and they also became the assault attack original rhythm section uh, behind Graham Bonnet. And so, you know, so th those guys are uh, important to be there as, as, as the, um, as the uh, you know, what you call it, the, the backbone, you know, holding it together. And, and sometimes, you know, you really only need Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, you know, just to be reminded of the good old days. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I have in the past interviewed Kirk Hammett, and every time he just says, Michael Schenker's my hero, Michael Schenker's my hero, Uli John Roth, Uli John Roth, Michael Schenker. He has an incredible love for both of you guys, and especially you. He is on the heart and soul track on this album. Uh, talk to me about getting Kirk. And, you know, I I'm assuming that he must have been like a kid in a candy store pl playing with you and for you. Uh, talk to me about that collaboration. And do you hope to do more with him down the road? Well, it's like this, you know, I used to live with Peter Mensch and he he, he was uh, um, managing uh, ACDC at the time and then later he became the Metallica manager and uh, but on the, uh, in 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 the in the um you know um in the 90s uh, I I he told me that that uh, or late 80s he told me that Kirk Hammett I'm I'm his Santa Claus, you know, and that means uh, I, I'm his favorite guitarist, and so. But he always wanted to connect with me, but he was too shy. He, he, and I understand where he's coming from because I have the same thing. You know, Jeff Beck is my favorite, but there's a different generation. There's a ten years difference. You don't just knock on the door and say, "Hey, mate, how are you doing?" <laughs> you know, I mean, you have a certain amount of respect, and, and you don't enter that space, you know, just like that. And so I can understand where Kirk is coming from. And, you know, it's the same relation. It's the same thing for me between Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and myself. But, you know, it's just like eventually um, I think uh, Kirk wanted to jam with me and, 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 and meet me and talk with me and so on. And so I think his management and uh, uh, Eddie Trunk, you know, uh, made it possible. They worked together on a plan to you know to have Kirk and me jam together and that's what we did at the that metal show and then we did an interview together we talked about you know how things happened in the past and how it came all about what you know how he developed and stuff like that and how he looked at things when he was when he was younger and uh, and so on and then you know so basically and then he came to a show that we did a few days later and he jumped with us and uh, uh, at a live gig, and and so basically, you know, Kirk turned, you know, became, you know, a, a, a became a friend, you know, and so it's just like, uh, you know, like like he he plays in the biggest band in the world, and 
you know, I said like, hey, Kirk, what do you think? <laughs> he said, yes. And so, you know, he, he I mean, I think that's probably one of his uh, 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 achievements that he, you know, that uh, something that he wanted to achieve, uh, but he would not necessarily express it himself. You know, I think I, 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 I you know, uh, he plays in the biggest band in the world. You know, I mean, uh, I, I want Kirk Hammett on my record, of course. <laughs> and, and I but, want Michael Schenker on the next Metallica record. Just I'm just throwing yeah, that out yeah, there. Why not? That, that would and, work you for know, me. And so and so, you know, uh, Kirk wanted to record this in his own uh, studio. And uh, so the, his management actually paid for Michael Foster's, our co-producer's flight, you know, to go to, to fly over there. So it was uh, actually everybody was um, basically interested in doing that and in fulfilling that for Kirk. And uh, and, you know, they sent me pictures from Hawaii uh, while they were recording. And I couldn't believe how, you know, Kirk looked like a 20 year old teenager. He, 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 he it was incredible because he was he had a baseball uh, cap on and he had a casual outfit on and he had his guitar and Michael Foss next to him. And he was smiling, you know, like he looked very, very happy and he looked so young. I couldn't believe it. You know, it, it was just amazing that, you know, those pictures they sent me back, you know, um, it was amazing. And so, and, and the funny thing was when I heard what he did, um, it reminded me of Lonesome Crow, you know, it's, it's just really, because I had a certain vibrato when I was doing Lonesome Crow. And so I kind of realized, man, he, he must have, you know, because he's 10 years younger. So when I was 15, when I was doing Lonesome Crow, he must have been on, he was only five years old. But I don't know when he started playing guitar and I don't know when he started discovering Lonesome Crow, but he must have decided that this is the vibrato he wants to, stick with you know because he plays that vibrato on the first solo you can hear very clearly like a lonesome crow vibrato and it was very interesting because you know i i developed out of that vibrato into you know into i don't know just developed out of it and and so like everybody has a different idea of you know it's a, it's a matter of taste again it's like what is it you know, like Paul Kossoff had a vibrato that I particular was not the vibrato that I would have chosen. And so, but many people like that vibrato. So it's always a matter of taste, you know, what, what, how you want to let a, a string vibrate, you know. And, uh, but I was very, it was very uh, uh, interesting to see, to hear that he actually, you know, had that, that vibrato. And because I never knew actually any of the Metallica music other than I was I was introduced to Metallica music because I stayed away from this, listening from uh, consuming music or listening to music or copying guitarists since I was 17 years old but you can you cannot always escape you know uh, not listening to people uh, especially if you're in a in a clothes shop in a boutique in France and they play the whole Metallica album you know why why are you buying clothes and so that's how I learned about the Unforgiven, you know, what a beautiful song that is, you know, a fantastic song. And that's when I also realized that, 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 um, uh, that, um, Kirk had elements of myself, you know, especially in the classical, in the, in the, in the melodic 
way of playing, you know, which they combine, which I noticed, you know, the hard stuff with the classical and melodic uh, 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 approach, and uh, make, which makes it a very nice combination. And, uh, you know, so so basically, it it was something that had to happen, and it happened. And there it is. And, and, and it's great. Um, the album has two songs, uh, Warrior and The Last Supper, that feature all four vocalists, which I think is just an incredibly fun concept. Talk to me about putting the guys together for those two songs and not having, you know, a single voice represent those single songs. Because again, I, I come from the fan perspective and it's just kind of, it's a cool that you got Graham and Gary and Robin all on the same album, but then you've got them on the same songs. Talk to me about those two songs and, and just that process. Yeah. And so basically when I, when I had done my music, I mean, I could have just sent out, you know, to everybody. Well, I, I could have just decided to have, each singer sings three songs and that's it. But they would have been too clinical, you know. So I already knew that it had to happen in a way to make this more interesting that at least like three songs, you know, two or three songs should be uh, shared between the four singers uh, on, the, on the same song. And, and, and I told Michael that, that, that we should, you know, figure out how to do that and where and when and what song. And so when I put my, my, my second music on the table and we put the blueprint together and, and you know, uh, 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 musically uh, without vocals and stuff um, and make it as, made it as uh, complete as possible with, with guide drums, guide bass and guide uh, keyboards and stuff. And next day I come to the studio and, and, and Michael Foss, co-producer, says to me, like, Michael, I was working on, on that song, that, uh, on that music that you... Uh, that we did yesterday um, and uh, I want you to listen I, I did lyrics and melody and I went like Michael this is fantastic this is perfect for the whole this is the perfect song you know and, 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 and I was so happy that it happened right in the beginning of recording because this song was the perfect song you know to to let people in on you know what this album is all about and um you know, to have everybody be present right in the beginning, you know, rather than, you know, uh, having a song where it was just one of the singers sings. We, we actually were so fortunate that Michael came up with a fantastic melody. He, he is a, Michael Foss is an 80s fan. He is a MSG fan. He is a Michael Schenker fan. He is a Gary Barden fan. He is a, he is a fan of the 80s. He knows how MSG works, you know. And so he is the man, you know, he is the guy who had to do this album uh, because he understands how everybody ticks and he, he, he identifies with everything. And he is also capable. He is a, he is a genius. He, is a, he has an incredible ear and he, he is an amazing um, you know, musician. And so he, he was actually able, he actually uh, made a B plan for, for, for Graham Bonnet you know, because originally we we were told we had all the time in the world to to complete this album, but then I realized we had a, a confirmed American tour already, and so I I, I asked Nuclear Plus to to make a as time schedule. By what time would we have to finish this album in order to have enough time to promote this album and then be ready for release and then make that possible before we start touring? And so we had a schedule, and so. Michael first started secretly, he started writing lyrics, you know, whenever he thought he, 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 he had something, 
going and and uh, so he did that for for warrior but he also did it for last supper and he knew exactly which line to give to which person that it was amazing and and it sounds fantastic and it sounds like and and then what he did for graham you know because graham didn't quite he was still his manager was calling up and saying do you have any any other faster songs and and i think graham was still thinking that he had more time and so but we were already developing very fast and so michael foss had already written um uh, you know uh, he he already made a b plan just in case for my for for graham and so uh, michael he knew exactly how to phrase and how to sing to custom tailor something for graham in case uh, graham had a problem finding the right song for himself and when um, michael frost went over to los angeles to complete uh, uh, robin's vocals and and graham's and and uh, and graham's vocals and he came up and uh, and said, you know, here, Graham, look, just in case you like this, you know, I have something that that you may enjoy and it makes your life easier. Have a listen to this. And Graham was so happy. Graham said, this is fantastic, you know. And when you listen to Night Moods, I mean, it sounds like Graham. It sounds like a Graham song, you know, and Everest, the same thing. It's amazing how how Michael Foss can do that, and 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 when you listen to the to the ad libs on the end of Night Moods, you know it's, a, it's such a power that coming from Graham, it's 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 just amazing. So basically, another element that came to the foreground that we never even um, that I never even thought of that naturally happened, and that. Um, contributes to making this even more interesting and combining uh, different elements was that we ended up different combination background vocals, you know, like for instance, Gary and Doogie, they were singing um, uh, Take Me to the Church, you know, and did the vocal, and which gives it a, an additional, you know, texture, chemistry. a nice texture. Yeah, yeah. texture, exactly. And, and and I was helping out on Uncle's Away with Doogie and Gary. And so, and we did different combinations. So that kind of, exactly like you just said, gave it an extra texture that we never, that actually happened by itself, that we never even, you know, planned. That it just kind of, I guess, it naturally comes forward because you have so many people singing and then and then doing street vocals in Warrior, which was, you know, that rough voice in contrast with the beautiful singing of the four singers sharing the the lines in warrior and so it, it's just amazing how how it all pendles and and just like you know like a, you don't even know the picture you have puzzles but you don't know what the picture is going to be but yet at, at at some point because when i start writing the music you know i write in such a way that there is a subliminal, a subliminal, um, something going right. on that is there, but you don't really necessarily hear. You hear it subliminal uh, it, because it's not in the foreground; it's in the background, and it gives the singer a kind of a guide. They don't really know that; they they're not really aware of that. But it makes it easier to actually be sure that the song goes a certain direction. Even though I don't know what the vocals are going to be, I know that that subliminal something that I put on there will 
keep the thing going in a certain direction. And that's why I kind of feel pretty confident, you know, when I'm done with my music and, and wrote everything in such a way that it, that the whole album is going to be balanced because, which is a very important aspect and that there is not too much lead guitar and not, not too little and not too much of that and not too much of that, but uh, you know, something of all the elements that are important, but in a balanced way. And so basically, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's just, you know, you don't really have a picture a hundred percent, you know, like a puzzle, but you have the puzzles, you know, and you kind of, you know, I personally kind of, uh, of course there was the element of Michael Foss that surprised all of us, you know, that he ended up have, having that much input lyrically and uh, and mel- mel- melody-wise, helping to make it possible for all four singers coming across singing together on Warrior at Supper. It, it, it's just a a fantastic uh, um, work from, yeah. from, from Michael Foss's, you know. And the way the, the singers delivered what Michael Foss wrote is it, just fantastic. Oh, it really is. It, and I've had a chance to hear the album, and it's, it's some of the strongest work you've ever done. It just it, it, It's a very complete album on all aspects. Um, I know we only had half an hour, and we, we, we're, we're, we've run out of time, but I'd be remiss just if you could get a quote on the UFO album Lights Out. It, is, it remains the highest charting uh, album in the U.S. for the band. Uh, just, just take a couple of seconds to talk to me about that album and that time in your life because it's 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 such a powerful uh piece of yeah work. well basically it's like that that's why i called ron neverson the sixth member of the band and that's what it is you know i mean we, we made me personally as a guitarist i developed you know from phenomenon to faucet to no heavy patting lights out uh obsession strangers in the night i mean every album i stepped up you know but Ron Everson is the one, actually, with the entrance of Ron Everson and Paul Raymond. That's when everything changed, you know. And that's that's when the power came in, and and it was the it was the the, the songwriting ability of of Paul Raymond, um, the the chemistry of Paul Raymond that was very suitable for the rest of the guys. Uh, his way of playing guitar and 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 playing the key was very 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 unique way of uh, sense of melody, and uh, and with the uh, um, you know with the ears of Ron Neverson, I mean, the, unbelievable, you know, and so that's it. That's it. You know, it's basically lights out. By that time, the band was complete. The chemistry was complete. Uh, those two elements and the pick nose. <laughs> I, I used a lot of pick nose. Somehow, Ron Neverson knew how to work a pick nose and make it sound like a like a bloody wall of marshals. You know, <laughs> it's unbelievable. You know what a pick nose is? Not exactly, but I'm sure you can tell. Yeah, me. a pick nose is a little tiny amplifier. Okay. With one little speaker, which we actually used on that album. Um, more probably more than a Marshall amplifier. It was just a tiny little practice amp. And what Ron Neverson got out of that was unbelievable. I mean, that guy has got ears that is, is it's beyond. And and uh, so I actually used 
a little practice amp, and then of course it was a lot of close miking. Uh, um, you know, the, the, um, the, in those days, all of a sudden the ambience of the drums was out the window. It was all close miking. It was a different technique, and but one Neverson had an idea how to do that. He had a concept, and uh, so, but. Also, the compositions were very good. It was a very, very uh, healthy, um, balanced, um, uh, um, uh, selected bunch of songs that were written by, you know, like let's say Pete Way is more a stones type of person. I am more the melodic person. So you put together... Then, um, you know, like, like for instance, uh, Too Hot to Handle, uh, or now let's say, um, or even only You Can Rock Me, you know, you, you have the, you have the, 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 the Pete Way element, and, you, and then you have the melodic um, Michael Schenker element, and then you have the monotonous Phil Mock element. <laughs> it just kind of somehow works incredibly. And, uh, and then, you know, we made, we made this, Ron Neverson demonstrated something once, you know, he, he, he actually, a couple of things, which was very interesting. You know, he, he showed us how important a single string can be, a frequency that is missing. When you put that frequency in, it changes the whole song. It, it's unbelievable. I mean, it, it, was a, it was like magic. And also showing us that Pete Way, he was singling, he was, you know, taking everybody, you know, like there was a song, and he would say, look, look guys, I want to show you something. Listen to Pete Way on its own. And we went, wow, that sounds ugly. What is that? That is completely out of time. What is this? <laughs> and then he puts all the, the rest of the music to it, and it becomes really, really good. It was it was an amazing experience because Pete Way, with his very raw, unsophisticated bass playing, but very melodic and a very interesting style of bass playing, on its own it sounded horrible and ugly. But together with the rest of the guys, it made the song. I couldn't believe it. It's it's just something that's unbelievable, and so. It gave it the dirt that was needed, if you know what I mean. And so, because Phil, Mark sings very monotonous, but I play very melodic. And Paul Raymond is a very melodic, unique, uh, puts notes together in a very unique way. And um, and Paul and and and, and uh, Pete Way is the dirty, the, the you know the war and puts the dirt in that is needed, you know, to get some rough edges. And you put it all together, you have a chemistry that you cannot, that you cannot go in a shop and buy a, a book how to put a chemistry together. It, it just happens, you know. Undeniable. You would never choose Pete Way as a bass player when you hear him by, yourself, by himself. You would never choose that. But the universe puts these elements together because it works, but a human cannot figure this out by himself. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. It really is. And, and I've looked up pig nose here on the computer, and these cute, <laughs> cute little he brown like a... speakers, or, yeah. or, or amplifiers, I should say. They're, they're, they're adorable. Yeah. 
Adorable. Um, yeah. And of course, Lights Out remains a classic. It is just one of those yeah. albums that every rock fan needs to have in their collection. Michael, always a pleasure. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in Montreal in March. And just, just thank you. And best of luck with the new album. I have pre-ordered it from Japan because there's a bonus track. And I just oh, love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. So thank you. Great. Thank you so much. And we'll talk again. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. Ah, yes. Kirk Hammett. I'm his Santa Claus. you got to love that quote from Michael Schenker. New album, of course, is Resurrection. Do yourself a favor and check that out. And do check out the Michael Schenker Fest tour coming to North America and, of course, the rest of the world in 2018. Before we got into Michael, I was talking to author Robert Lawson about his book, Still competition the listener's guide to cheap trick and yep i left you on a cliffhanger what is according to him the best cheap trick album and so with the actual answer here is my continued chat with robert lawson to you what would be the best cheap trick album if a fan's listening to this and they don't know the band what's the one album where you say okay Here's the one you gotta go check out first. Well, I guess part of the idea of the book is to bring a little bit of light to some of the band's music that isn't as popular or as well known to mainstream music fans as other stuff. You know, when Kid Rock introduced them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he mentioned I Want You to Want Me and Surrender and I don't know, maybe he mentioned Dream Police and I was thinking, geez, everybody knows those songs. But they've got so many great, great songs aside from that. Um, those are like the three songs I want to hear the least from them. Not that I don't love them. I love them. But they've got so many, and it's a testament to Rick Nielsen's creativity that the early albums are filled with so much quality and unique material. So I love the debut, but I love the first three, all dear to my heart. I would suggest any of those are great to start with. Uh, Budokan, you can't go wrong with that, although it's not a real sampler of their uh, early career. It's kind of veered more towards the pop side. And the other thing with Budokan is that a lot of people think of it as a companion almost to Kiss's Alive album in the sense that they did three studio albums and then kind of came out with a, a live best of that. And Budokan, even though it is, it does follow three studio albums, but it doesn't quite follow that template because there's zero songs from the debut on at Budokan. And in fact, of the 10 songs on there, four of them are non-album tracks. Yeah, which is great. And and now you mentioned In Color, uh, produced, of course, by Tom Worman. And uh, I'll quickly share a story. I, I stayed at Tom's house uh, a while ago and... When you get to the house, it's a huge spread, and you walk in, and the first thing that is in that opening hallway are all these gold and platinum records from Cheap Trick hanging on the wall. And as a fan, you know, you're there for to, to, to talk to Tom and, and meet Tom. But that moment of fandom just, you know, overcomes, and you go, oh, look at that, in color. <laughs> you know, it's... It really is sort of the, that the greatest moment. Um, okay, so so we know the big hits. What are some of these songs that 
got sort of lost in the shuffle that the diehards don't or, or that the diehards do know and, and love and really say, wow, this is but the casual fan doesn't know. So what are sort of your top three or four songs that you say, OK, we know Dream Police, well, we know Surrender. Right. Now, now try these ones. Well, I mean, you can really anything from the from the debut uh, you can go with. Um, and there's some deep cuts on Heaven Tonight that are just wonderful. One thing that that Rick used to do a lot, and I mentioned it in the book a little bit. I, maybe I should have talked about it a little bit more. But uh, this is the kind of thing that I think the hardcore fans appreciate more, and it shows it shows really his talent of different shades within a song. Is he does a thing that I like to call uh, like a dreamy aside. So what that is is he has a very aggressive rock song it could be a very fast song and there's a lot of energy and a lot of power and he still can't help himself there's got to be a point in the middle where it kind of downshifts to like a mid-tempo and robin sings a little just like this little dreamy floaty kind of and it might only be like two or three lines and then bam right back into the hard rock uh, uh arrangement so an example of that he does it in hot love uh, they do it in Lookout. They do it in stiff competition. There's a whole bunch of examples of this where, you know, they're they're really driving forward with a lot of aggression and power, and then he still steps back and does this. You know, um, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. You might have to. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, again, Hot Love. The, you know, let me inside of you tonight. Yeah. Like the way that he like that's a little light, airy kind of thing, and then bam, right back into it. You hear the same thing in Lookout. And the same thing in stiff competition. It's really a to me. It's a neat thing. It shows that Rick has so much creativity, or he did when he was younger, that even a, a full-on heavy rock tune like Hot Love, he's still going to inject a very unique uh, perspective that most hard rock bands wouldn't. They would yeah. just stick with it's a straight-ahead rock tune. I'll see you at the end. Rick yeah. kind of has to go off kilter a little bit. See, and, and, and I that, love him for it. Yeah, and I love him for it. See, I was going to add that, is that, you know, I have this 340-song playlist that I've been walking the dog to. And, to and, and when you really sort of have this moment of focus on the songs, you really hear the instrumentation and how complex it is. It's not just four guys playing these simple notes and here's the love song and here's... There's really all kinds of layers. I mean, a cheap trick song is really like an onion. You sort of got to peel back layer after layer after layer. It's just, it's just wonderful. Now, here's another thing that they do in their songs that that maybe you could speak about. They always seem to pay ode or homage to their past lyrics to other bands. You know, a little they'll throw in a little guitar lick that some other band had made famous. Um, talk to me about cheap tricks, sort of clever use of referring to their own songs and their own lyrics. You know, I'm thinking of one particular on Standing on the Edge where they say, and the lyrics in Surrender were, you know, uh, talk to me about that and and sort of that little cute trick that they do. Yeah, that's, that's, the more that you dig into the catalog, the more that you find that. Um, Like, there's a song on the 1997 self-titled Cheap Trick album, which is a 10 out of 10 uh, to me, um, there's a song in there where he rehashes some of the lyrics from a very early song called Violins. And Violins has 
was never even on an album. It appears on the Sex America Cheap Trick box set, uh, which is from the late eight, uh, 90s. But uh, and a great you know, song, never, by the way, violins. I love that song. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, creepy. It's a really, it's a, re- it's a really neat, neat song. But there's yeah. like a whole like two or three lines in a, right in a row that they recycled in '97. Um, so there's a lot of that. There's a lot of kind of tips to the tip of the hat to the older lyrics. Sometimes they're just recycling them because maybe they Rick might feel that uh, they weren't quite used properly. Uh, the song "Baby Talk." Those lyrics reappear a few years later in another yeah. tune. And I've always thought of it as sort of like, it's like, where's fine. Waldo? It, it has to, it, to me, it's been, it's like a where's Waldo thing where they go, all right, listeners, you know our music. Let's let's see if you can find the little nuggets we've put in here. That, that, I've always sure. seen it as yeah. like, a, like a game almost. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a little Easter egg. Yeah, it's it's really entertaining here. And and before we wrap up, of course, the band has made a tra- a change with their drummer, Bunny Carlos, who everybody loved through, you know, the seventies and eighties. The smoking drummer, et cetera, et cetera, got changed yeah. by Dax uh, Nielsen, Rick's son. How do you respond to that? Because I've been listening to the later albums and the older albums, and as much as I would love to have the original lineup. And I would still love to see it in 2018, 2019. I think Dax has brought a certain freshness to the to the mix and a certain energy that maybe um, you know just a different energy. I don't want to say a new energy because I, I don't want to say that Bunny didn't have an energy, but it just I don't know. It seems to have revitalized the band a little bit. So I, I'm okay with it. How do you see that? Uh, I'm okay with it as well. I mean, I think that uh, Bun is a big part of the original success of the band. He's a, he's a very unique drummer, especially in the uh, 77 to kind of 81 or 82 uh, era. Um, like his drumming on the Budokan, especially if you watch the video of it, it's just fantastic. You know, the idea that he's, they always say that he looks like an accountant, but, you know, he's more like an accountant. It's like if Keith Moon was an accountant or something, you know, uh, just because he's got this kind of bespeckled look, it doesn't mean that he's like mild mannered behind the kid at all. He's a very musical drummer, but he's a very uh, heavy hitter. Uh, he's got a drum pattern that goes throughout the song "Look Out." That to me, no other drummer would come up with that. I think like it, it's it's not quite a fill or a press roll, but it's something a little different. I, I don't think uh, most drummers. I think they would just stick to to playing. Uh, the four four time right the simple so he's a very unique sorry they would stick to playing the simple beat and just not yeah yeah he, he you know i love bunny i mean i love all the guys it's just I, even john brandt and pete Kamita. they they added their little sort of you know spice to the band um let me ask you about the the album the doctor here came out in what <laughs> 86 i guess it is yeah right 86 um it's a strange album, but I've always loved it. I, I think songs like Men You Lip You Later and uh, Kiss Me Red and Romance in the Rear View Mirror are these just sort of cutesy pop songs, and I have always listened to them. I will always listen, and I've never sort of understood. And, of course, I had a different connection to it. I was walking down the street in Montreal by a Sam the Record Man, which, you know, for Americans would be like a Tower Records. And they had this huge display in the window of the doctor, and... This was, of course, pre-internet. You didn't know when an album was being released. It just sort of showed up. So I saw this big display with, you know, all kind. And I, 
bought it and I drove home in the car an hour away that I lived and listened to it like five times on the way home. And so it has a special place in my heart, but, but others don't have the same love for that album. How, how do you sort of see yourself vis-a-vis the doctor? Well, uh, there are, there's definitely some production issues with the album that I think is one of the things that drags it down. Uh, a song like Kiss Me Red, which is a cover uh, from a TV show, I don't understand why that would even be on a Cheap Trick record when you have a, a writer of the capabilities of Rick Nielsen. Um, you know, there those early albums where he was writing all the material or, or nine-tenths of the material, that's why they're so great. And that's what built the Cheap Trick legacy was Rick Nielsen's talent and creativity as a writer, as well as the band's performance of those songs. So to do a uh, a cover from a TV show starring John Stamos, I don't know whose idea that was. But the I like it. Does... I like it. Don't put it down. It's a great song. Kiss me red. Come on. <laughs> I'm sure their version is, is better than the one from the TV show. Right. But, uh, you know, Take Me to the Top is a, a great vocal. And, of course, uh, you know, Robin has that talent that he can make almost anything shine. I do think that the production kind of drags it, but uh, his performance on that song is fantastic. And It's Only Love is like a great, upbeat pop tune. Um, and It's Up To product- You, it's fantastic. I mean, what, what what are people complaining about? It's a great album. <laughs> um, and of course, well, you know, it, well, it was... There's a, there's, a picture on the, there's a picture on the back cover of the book. It's small, but there's actually a crazy fan who's a friend of mine, and he's got a doctor tattoo on his arm. And you can see that on the back cover. Oh, so you're look. not alone in loving that album. Yeah, you see. And and listen, it was produced by Tony Platt. And I just recently interviewed Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden. And he, in that interview, and in other interviews, not just mine, has said that Tony Platt is the one who gave him his voice. Because when he came over from the other band, Samson, he didn't sing as the Bruce Dickinson you know now. He sang as Bruce this guy. And Tony Platt said, you need to try this and you need to do. So, you know, listen. Can't complain. Tony Platt did a great job. Kiss Me Red is a great song, and uh, you know the rest is history. Uh, the book is, of course, still competition. The Listener's Guide to Cheap Trick. Robert, a great pleasure, absolutely a great pleasure. And um, if fans want to get it, of course, I'm assuming that well, you can get it at Amazon and other places. Uh, tell me where folks can get it, where folks can reach out to you on Twitter and on Instagram and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, well, it's definitely available on all uh, international. Uh, Amazon sites. Uh, for Canadian fans, it's actually a little cheaper if you go directly through the publisher. Um, but uh, but you can you can do that as well. Um, it's available in a paperback, a hardcover, and as an ebook. And um, I you can reach out to me on Facebook uh, or my website, thisideofthetracks.ca. Um, and if someone's interested in a signed copy, for example, although, again, the shipping from Canada sometimes makes that a little bit uh, restrictive. Uh, but, yeah, there's uh, lots of places to find me and, and people who want to talk about Cheap Trick and talk about the book. Uh, a lot of the fans who've received the book, uh, I'd say 99% of the fans love the book. I've been getting uh, really a lot of positive feedback. Oh, it's a people great book. Who, oh, yeah. I mean, you can't complain about this book. It's got everything you need to know about every song. It's it's, And I learned something. And to me, that's... I would, yeah, that's not easy. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to sound arrogant, but I thought I knew everything there was to know about Kiss, Aerosmith, Cheap Trick, Van Halen. And then this book came out and you went, 
oh, they had a song, you know, and it's like, oh, I didn't realize. Whoops. Okay. Uh, and of course, you've done other books. Um, it's not just Cheap Trick. You've done uh, Nazareth, right? That's right. My first book was in a similar format, actually the exact same format, about uh, Nazareth, another sort of unsung uh, band from my youth. Yeah. Uh, so what other books are there that, that folks can check out uh, from you? Uh, those are them. Those are them. Okay. Those two for, it's those two for now. I am working on a third uh, right now, which is that probably won't be out for another year and a half, I think. Can you tell us but, what it's uh, about? Yeah. Well, we got to have some Canadian content, right? Right. We had a Scottish band for the first book, and of course, Cheap Trick are American. So I think we need some Canadian content. Maybe. Oh. Right. So there <laughs> maybe, you go. Maybe maybe your maybe your listeners have to guess. All right, so that'll that, that'll give you a choice between like Brian Adams, Loverboy, uh, Helix, Killer Dwarves, uh, Honeymoon Suite, uh, Glass Tiger. Maybe we'll do another Scottish well, connection right there. Glass, the best of Glass Tiger. True. Great band, by the way. That's true. Well, one of the things in in both books is that I feel that they're pretty unrepresented in kind of the rock and roll library. I'm sure. Uh, Mitch, you have a lot of rock books and rock biographies, as I do, and most of my friends do. And that's what kind of made me think, uh, wow, no one's ever written a book about Nazareth. Maybe we got to do something about that. And Cheap Trick is almost the same thing. You know, there is one book uh, written by a friend of mine named Mike Hayes, and it's a great book, but it's it's been out of print for a while. Uh, they briefly reprinted it when the band were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was great timing. Um but, and that, you know, it's a different and that book's like book. 20 years old, I think. I, I think I remember getting yeah. that like around like 97 or 90. I mean, roughly, I, I remember being it long, long, long time ago. So, no, this is a great book. Yeah. It really fills the void. And I'm a complete and utter music geek. You know, you see like a CD single come out with a, with a track and you go, well, okay, it's The Flame, but I already have The Flame. And then you find out, well, no, this one's a live version and this one's the radio edit. And, so, and to me, that's interesting. And I know to a lot of listeners, that kind of sort of, and I call it geekdom, is, is kind of interesting. And it is interesting. But uh, Robert, just a great, great pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. And, yeah. and folks, go buy the book. Uh, honestly, it is called Still Competition, The Listener's Guide to Cheap Trick. Head over to Amazon and uh, check that out. And uh, hey. My show's now on Amazon Alexa, so check us both out at the same time. Hey, there we are. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. Ah, cheap trick. You know, you know I could have made that conversation eight hours long because there is never, never enough talk about cheap trick. There's, there's just time for cheap trick anytime. Just, you want to talk cheap trick? Call me up. I'm, I'm good to go. But uh, anyway... So here we are, first episode, Westwood One. Uh, we're not done yet. It is an extravaganza. Uh, and let's get over to Simple Minds singer Jim Kerr. We have a new album by the band called Walk Between Worlds. I have had a chance to hear it. It is a fun, fun pop rock record. And, and if you were a fan back then, if you remember The Breakfast Club and you remember those great hits from the 80s, you'll actually dig this album because it, it really is... How can I put this? It captures the essence of the band, the classic sound, but it also moves it forward. We're not just repeating 1985 or 1987. We are in 2018, and it is a 2018 album, but 
if you loved Alive and Kicking and you love those radio hits and you love that song from the Breakfast Club soundtrack, you're going to dig this. And Jim could not have been nicer. Just such a... Anyway, I just got a nice warm feeling from the conversation. It was just, it was just a, a, a wonderful chat, almost, almost as if we were two old friends talking about music. And I, I just love that. So Walk Between Worlds is the, the new... Simple Minds album. Check it out and uh, check out my interview with Jim Kerr here on Westwood One. We are speaking with Jim Kerr of Simple Minds. The new album is Walk Between Worlds. Jim, absolute pleasure to talk to you uh, for, for, for many, many reasons. Back in 1985, I was graduating high school and, of course, Breakfast Club and that and that time and that song and just the band, that musical space, you, you filled it perfectly so just a great pleasure to talk to you thank you much you're very kind nice to talk to you as well yes and and, I, and i'll throw some 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 quick trivia at you uh, on this day january 11th 1986 alive and kicking was at the number four position on billboard so uh, happy 32nd anniversary of that oh that's a nice one great <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so let's talk about walk between worlds and before I get into the process of making the album and what you're trying to say, talk to me about making albums just in general, because you, you have been active. You know, you had Graffiti Soul, Big yeah. Music, Black and White, Neon Lights. You haven't stopped. You haven't become just a nostalgia act. You haven't just said, hey, we've got these singles. Let's go play them. You know, talk to me about this desire to to come up with new music and I don't want to say stay relevant, but but stay, you know, active and, and writing new stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Uh, we obviously, well, next week marks our 40th anniversary from um, our first ever gig. And, you know, the obvious question, how does that feel? I'll tell you how it feels. We feel incredibly fortunate Uh to have had what is essentially a life in music, a lifetime, because there's a there's a certain point where you've been doing it so long where it's not just a career, it's it's as much your life, they're so intertwined. And basically, I think if you'd said to us 40 years ago when we were kids, here's the deal, you know, this is how it's going to pan out, do you want it or not? We would have bitten your hand off and... Uh, um, it's been an incredible experience. There's been highs, there's been lows, there's been all manner of stuff. But at the end of the day, how fortunate are we to have this career? And um, we, every time we go to play live, every time we, we pull out these songs, we're really, we're pulling up the journey we've been on. We're pulling up the story that the band has written. We're really invented ourselves but when it comes to writing new songs or putting out new albums it's so important to us because I mean first of all that's what we do we've been doing writing songs since, since we we're kids and I just can't see that we're gonna stop that ever and the byproduct of that is um, we feel it revitalizes the story it gives energy to the story i mean when the past is always going to be the the past and we're proud of it we're always 
going to want to talk about it. We're always going to want to promote it. We're always going to relive it. But we don't want to get into that thing where you become your own museum piece, if you know what I mean, that you calcify, that it becomes only about that. Certainly not at this stage anyway, because um, we're songwriters and that's how we see the world. Talk to me also then, in 2010, when you released Lost Boy, a.k.a. Jim Kerr, why at that time did you sort of feel a need to step outside of Simple Minds and, and say something in your own distinct voice? Well, that was pretty easy, to be honest, because, I mean, one thing was um, I was feeling particularly one Simple Minds album had finished, the tour had finished, and sometimes a tour project finishes, you're left gasping for energy. I, I, I felt energized, and I wanted to continue the, the work. Um, Charlie Burchill, my songwriting partner, he, although we're the same age, he was like sort of slightly different stage in his life where his kids were younger and basically, you know, he was looking forward to a year off and I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to keep the muscles going and, and, and uh, keep being creative and the way to do that was to, you know, step outside of Simple Minds and that was the time to, to really do that and uh, I certainly enjoyed that as well. Yeah, when... When you approach a new album like Walk Between Worlds, at this point in your career, do you feel sort of uh, restricted in what you can say because of the past, or is it actually different where you can do whatever you want and have this complete freedom in terms of creating and composing and, and making songs? Uh, you know, How do you sort of approach making a new album with, with an ear to the past or, or eyes to the front? Well, the challenge, I guess the challenge is always, you want to retain, you want to retain the, the, the notion of whatever's classic about the band. You always want to have that because that's who you are, that's your DNA, um, and without that, identity would be missing. But at the same time, you let's just say, to make it easy, you want it to be contemporary, you look to maybe add something else to it, you don't want to do the exact same thing as you did two years previously, you're looking for a different scope. Um, so it's it's always that challenge, because you're damned if you change and you're damned if you don't. So it's really, um, I think, I have a theory that most artists, or certainly most artists of note that I like, they usually have certain themes that are central to them, and they dance around them throughout their career, um, offering different points of view or a different take on it or whatever. But, you know, usually, like a painter, usually sticks to a certain style likewise, but somehow it's got to have a vitality, somehow it's got to feel fresh, somehow... Well, it's got to have all those things. That's the challenge. How do you do that um, when you're into your 18th album or your 19th album? But um, but it's a challenge we enjoy. Yeah, it really is. Uh, you mentioned Charlie Burchill. He's been there with you from the beginning. Um, talk to me about him as a musical partner and then also just what he means to you, 
because I'm sure throughout this, you've had your moments of great joy and you probably had some moments of where you don't see eye to eye. But what does Charlie mean to you both professionally and personally? Well, it's hard to remember a world without Charlie because I, I met him. Charlie and I grew up in the same street in Glasgow um, as kids. And I first set eyes on Charlie uh, the day we just moved into the street and it was... The classic thing, you know, my, my parents were, uh, the, the removal van was there. They said, go out and play <coughs> to my brother and myself. And um, there was a group of kids already there, and Charlie was one of them. And, and I've known Charlie since I was eight years old. Uh, we went to the same school. I guess around about the age of 13 was when we started noticing that we were the first ones in our class that were buying albums or LPs, as we, we called them then. And we were buying uh, the same ones. So we had a bond there. And and Charlie has been in my life ever since, because at the age of 16, 17, we started to write songs and form this thing that went on to become Simple Minds. And you're quite right um, in saying that, that uh, we are the best of buddies, because uh, there's even my brothers are not as close as Charlie as, as we've spent that much time together. But we also know how to give each other space. I mean, for instance, I'll see Charlie next week. It's been holidays and, and all that. I haven't seen him for, for two months, but we haven't even spoken in the two months because, well, he's the other side of the world. Uh, but, but we kind of know <laughs> that it's good to give each other space as well, which means that when you come back together, you know, you've got things to report, you've had different experiences and all of that. But, um, but also I said, with the best of buddies, if we're talking about the new album, um, walk between worlds, one of my favorite tracks on, it's a track called sense of Dis discovery and Charlie and I had the biggest fight ever. Uh, maybe not ever, but, the biggest fight we've had for a long, long time on the last day of recording over that track, which I think is a great thing because it showed that we're both still really passionate about it. And at the end, of course, uh, uh, we end up seeing IOI, the kind of things that he wasn't liking about it. I couldn't understand, but he said a few things that had made me see it differently. Um, in the end, we got a better track for it. But um, so that's the kind of relationship that we have. Yeah, and it's a great track, and it, and it, it does have that little allusion to uh, alive and kicking, which is great. It does but, indeed. But it's it's a great track. Let, let me um let me just quickly tell you this story. Years ago, I was friends with Doug Feger of the Knack, and we were sitting around talking about their big song, My Sharona, and I was telling him, "Oh, this it's great. Everybody knows you." And he looked at me and he said, listen, I'm not going to complain. It's bought me this house. It's bought me this pool. It's bought me this car. But it was the golden albatross because everything we did afterwards was we'd go to the record company with a new song and they'd say, yeah, but I'm not hearing a, I'm not hearing another My Sharona. Um, you have referred to Don't You Forget About <laughs> Me as the Black Swan. Um, right? We know it's a great song. We know everybody loves it. We know Billy Idol covered it. We, But did, did it at some point become so big that it became a an impediment to the career where record companies would say, that's really nice. We love your album, but we don't hear, don't forget, you know. Did you have that sort of similar experience? 
I think we maybe had it with the the album following it. Yes, where I mean our our careers were always a, a little out of kilter when it comes to the states because by time we finally broke through in the states, we had you know we'd had a handful of number one records and. UK and in certain places in Europe and stuff. So we were that much more well well established and 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 perhaps could be more adventurous and stuff. Whereas in the states, the amalgamation of the song, the Breakfast Club movie, MTV was right at a peak. I mean that it made the whole thing this colossus. That years later, decades later. The song. I mean, the song doesn't belong to us in the sense that. Right, you didn't write it. Even even though different generations, Keith Forsey wrote it for for the movie. But that doesn't mean to say that when we did the song, we we put our heart and soul into it. We gave it the Simple Minds heartbeat. We gave it the sound. I'd like to think that we 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 uh, we really sealed the deal. And no, my attitude is that you know. Any negatives that one might be, and I know what is the Doug. I know what Doug from the Knack means, but come on, the 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 positives far outweigh anything. And that song, anyone that's taken any pleasure from that song, great. Well, listen, I, I'm one of those over the years. Um, 2016, you released the acoustic album, which. It's just so on point. Just the way you've broken down the songs, it's a phenomenal job. Uh, talk to me about rediscovering your own catalog, in a sense, and going through that process of stripping them down and getting to the bare essentials and putting out the acoustic album. That was, I mean, that was a real, uh, that was a really good idea because the way we we. We did that. We also we we broke off from recording Walk Between Worlds about halfway through because we thought experience had told us it's always great to take a couple of months to step back and then you come back to it fresh and that's you know, if you're not under time constrictions and we weren't. So about halfway through we're feeling good and we thought let's break off, come back in a couple of months' time and meantime sometimes when we do that we go out and we play or whatever or this time we thought you know, this acoustic challenge has been there for a long time, and uh, uh, maybe this is the time to see what we could do there. And um, first of all, we thoroughly enjoyed the experience. We had to we had to find try and find a way of doing it our way because we didn't want it just to be you know bongos on the beach and some lovely guitars playing away. We really had to find a different way of still making the songs dynamic, atmospheric, all of that. But we did come up with new arrangements. And on some of the songs, it was a real pleasure. I mean, I have to say, trying not to be uh, um, um, too immodest, but, but some of the songs were better songs than I ever imagined that they were because quite a, long of, a lot of those 80s songs, don't get me wrong, I like them and I love them when we're doing them, but sometimes I thought the production was a much bigger part than the the song. However, when we stripped it down, the songs revealed themselves, in my opinion, some of them to, to be better songs than I really thought. Um, and uh, that was one thing that was really pleasure about it. Yeah, and, that, and that's, I think, the true 
test of a song is if you can just take out a piano or take out an yeah. acoustic guitar, if it holds up, yep. it goes on the album. If it doesn't hold up, it's not good. That's, you know. Yeah, it really is. It's a test, yeah. Um, January 10th, of course, was the, uh, I don't want to say, I guess, anniversary of the passing of David Bowie. We know that you have been a huge fan. You even uh, took to the Simple Minds website and, and, and wrote your thoughts about it. Um, talk to me about David Bowie and that love, and, and not only just as a musician, but you know, growing up as a young kid back in the UK at the time, what was it like to sort of have that icon, that, that music to, to, to grab onto? I mean, it's very hard to describe to certainly to generations now that that because <clears throat> the thing about boy was outside the the the, the boy effect. It was it was so startling. It was so stunning uh, um, because there was just no source of reference when he came along. You couldn't say, "Oh yeah, I can hear the Beatles there," or "Oh yeah, I hear Led Zeppelin," or uh, I mean, between the package of the music, the lyrics, the look. Uh, what he was conveying, he, there was no source of reference. You couldn't go online and say, oh, oh yeah, he took those clothes from Japanese you know, kabuki or he took this from Andy Warhol or whatever. We we were too young. None of those names meant anything to us, but it was a different world. And when he arrived, he literally, um, you know, it was like from another planet. And when he came to your town, because he did come to Glasgow and, and he was still playing smallish venues. And so to have this presence, uh, the world was never the same, you know, I mean, the excitement of, of him and then some of the great artists we, that we saw afterwards, but boy, for a generation of us, particularly in the UK then where he broke, broke through, um, the influence is immense. Just absolutely. Um, and then I just want to take you back to uh, the album uh, Once Upon a Time. Fair to say that that's the one that really set you on a course to sort of conquer North America? That's the one that, that that's the breakthrough? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, following on, you mentioned Don't You Forget About, about Me, and one of the things was, it was a double-edged sword. It was great to have that success, but we, we felt so guilty. We have this success with a song that we hadn't written, and if we didn't have something to follow it up with, and um, our producer at the time, the legendary, he was le- he was already legendary, but he's really legendary now, Jimmy Iovine, Bob Clearmountain. Um, they were saying, you've got to have something to, to, to follow up that up, and... Um, when you say Once Upon a Time, of course, the big track from now, Alive and Kicking, uh, that you mentioned as well, uh, um, getting that under our belt and getting excited about that and thinking, you know, this could have a chance. And uh, and it did. And I guess, you know, that summer, uh, between having those songs, all the things she said also features on that album, Sanctify. Uh, you know, it was great to finally be able to go and play all across America and um, have people familiar with the stuff. Yeah, just a, such a great album. And then uh, we'll finish on this today because uh, I know we have limited time, but you're doing these three shows over in uh, Europe. 
that are going to be as described performance of the album, onstage interview, and then a classic Simple Minds uh, set. Talk to me about sort of that concept. And is that something that you just you're just going to do for these three shows and that's it? Or is that something that you might want to sort of bring on the road, bring to North America, sort of a storytellers meets greatest hits kind of thing? I mean, because I, I would certainly pay to see that. Interesting. I mean, I, we, we, well, first of all, we're, we're really looking forward to any chance to, to get to come and play in America again. And, and it, it's, I think it's close because there was a few opportunities recently they didn't come off in the end but it's 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 up in the air so it's going to happen and when we do guarantee we'll be wanting to give uh our very best but um yeah i mean with the acoustic tour we 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 spoke more than we ever did and that went across real well i think um when you're older well first of all you've got stories to tell you've got experiences and and um and if you can articulate them and they're relevant to the music, they're relevant to the life you've been on, people seem to really love them. So, um, I mean, in the old days, what we were about to do, go out and play the album, it's actually about eight dates through Europe and the UK. In the old days, people would have called it a showcase. But but um, it's, we are going to be showcasing the album, but we're going to talk as well. And, you know, we're going to... We're gonna, um, uh, I'd like to think bring in one minute, you know, bring a humility to it as well. I mean, we want to be blowing people away when we play the music, but um, uh, I think I think now people want to know a lot more, or people are interested in a lot more things than we once thought of. So um, we'll be trying to kind of hone a show out of that, and people seem to be up for the idea of it. I think it's a great idea. Jim, absolute pleasure. Uh, Walk Between Worlds, of course, out February 2nd. And, uh, you know, listen, the uh, 1985 uh, high school kid talking to Jim Kerr on the phone is is fabulous. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely My pleasure. fabulous. So thank you for that. All right, Paul. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn.